0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz True Health Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Bank of Canada raises its interest rates to 5%, the highest level in 22 years. We look at the impact of the rate hike on our economy and your finances. Plus, with developers slowing construction or walking away from projects, as the industry copes with the 10th rate hike since early 2022, what's today's increase mean for Metro Vancouver's housing supply? And new COVID jabs are coming. We look at why it's recommended Canadians get another booster for the fall. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. We've got lots to talk about today as we look at the ramifications of the Bank of Canada hiking its interest rates by another 25 points to 5%. The central bank has been steadily increasing interest rates over the past three years in an effort to tame inflation. This is the, the highest level for interest rates. In 22 years, this is also the 10th rate hike since early 2022. So what's, what's this all mean? Well, are we winning the war on inflation, I think, is the first question. And Of course, the second one would be, if and when we win, will it mean recession and potentially throwing thousands of Canadians out of work? These are, of course, precarious times for many British Columbians who are carrying a lot of debt, something Premier David Eby acknowledged earlier today.
1: This is devastating news for families that have debt. Uh, They've borrowed money for various reasons to get through. A lot of businesses in British Columbia borrowed money to get through the pandemic. Uh, They're struggling under the weight of that debt. And you really do have to wonder uh, when the Bank of Canada is going to take a pause and see what the impact of this is going to be. Well, joining me now
0: to talk about the impact of this uh, rate increase is Michael Levy, CKNW's business analyst. Michael, thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, Jazz. Good afternoon. Good
0: afternoon. So uh, this, I'm going to assume, was not a surprise for you. Is this the right way to go in in regards to
1: taming inflation? Well, how's this for a definitive comment? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, uh, I just listened to the premier, and um, the first part of what he had to say, um, I started to scratch my head. The second part of what he had to say makes sense. What makes sense about it is, maybe we should be doing a little bit of wait and see. Let's see what the implications of the interest rate hikes that, we, that you just talked about that we've had. Let's give them a time or a bit of time here to see how impactful they're going to be and not overdo it. And uh, funny, I was reading um, today, I read Craig Alexander, uh, op Ed in the Globe and Mail. He used to be chief economist at TD Bank. He was saying exactly the same thing. He thinks he thinks that the Bank of Canada is erring on being too aggressive, and it takes uh, somewhere at some point 18 to 24 months for all these interest hikes to make their way through the system and have the impact. So I don't know. I think right now that uh, the Bank of Canada had this uh... Um, interest rate hike it was all over the place they 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 told everybody it was coming but my take on it is okay we still have an inflation problem but I've got to say that maybe it's time to take a step back for even a couple, three months mm-hmm. and see what unfolds because it is hurting and it may be hurting unnecessarily.
0: I guess the, in some ways one could argue the painful irony in all of this is that the biggest contribution to to inflation in May was mortgage interest costs. Uh, from what I can tell, it shot up almost 30 percent year over year. Um, if if this is to continue, I mean, September is the next time they'll look at this uh, a potential rate hike. There's still talk of another hike potentially on September 6th as well. Do you think the pressure may even grow? And I, I know the bank doesn't look at politics, but it's going to have to look at, at it to a certain degree. And what I mean by that is the average person who's on a variable rate mortgage barely holding on, there's only so much they can do at the end of the day
1: only so much jazz and the banks are playing ball with them and they're looking a little longer amortization they're also looking at less money going towards principal and more money going towards interest so the banks are are going along with it but when these people who have these variable rate mortgages or those with fixed rate by the way also when those when that term is up they revert back to the same kind of of uh, a, a loan or a, a mortgage, variable rate mortgage, as what they had. And all of a sudden, the amortizations don't change. And all of a sudden, they're back behind the eight ball again. And that's something we don't want to see. But mortgages that uh, were you know put into place in 2021, 2020, 21, 22, they're going to be due anywhere – 2024, 2025, that's not so far away. And that could be very, very impactful to the housing market and to people themselves who all of a sudden say, I can't afford to live in this house.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to inflation itself, I had a friend say to me, you know, it's easy to go from 8% down to 4, but very difficult to go from 4 to 2. It, it's just going to take that much longer. I'm looking at some of the numbers here. Restaurant prices uh, rose nearly 7% last year. Travel services rose nearly. Nearly twelve percent, uh, and one could argue um, there's a lot of pent up demand to be going out to restaurants, traveling this summer. One could argue that uh, we still have a ways to go because I expect people to travel more, be out and be you know spend some time with family, uh, traveling to Europe, whatever it may be. People are out and about. The weather is beautiful. So that final mile in the fight against inflation is a is a tough one, and it's going to take a long time
1: it is going to take a long time and your friend is right uh the 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 uh, you know inflation is now down around 3%. Well, coming from 8% to 3%, let's call that the easy part, even though it wasn't easy. Let's call that the easy part. From 3% to 2% is going to be much tougher, only coming down 1% That first 5% was going downhill. Now we're going to start to struggle, and that's why I think that part of the reasoning is let's take a step back and see if the impact of those raises in interest rates, what did you say, 10 times, Mm -hmm. is going to have the results they want. It's not going to be instant. And remember that the Bank of Canada's target rate is between one and three percent. So right now we have basically hit within a point or two their first part of their target. So they can ease off a little bit. It's three percent now. And let's fight that battle to get it down to two. But let's not take as many casualties as we may have to along the way.
0: What are the U.S. job numbers and the U.S. economy overall telling you? Because sometimes that can, that affects us as well. They're just 10 times larger. Uh, how does the U.S. economy look to you right
1: well, now? Well, the U.S. economy looks fairly strong. Their uh, employment numbers were not as strong as, let's say, comparing straight away to Canada. Uh, the U.S. employment numbers are starting to weaken a little bit, and uh, they've got far greater Problems than we do endemic to the United States, so I, I think there's going to be a problem in the U.S., particularly uh, people with uh, with loans, with debt. That the same thing here in Canada, who have the mortgages, and then they've got their geopolitical problems in the United States because. Like truth be told, Jazz, they're not getting much doing. All it is is fighting between the Democrats and the Republicans, but there's no agenda, at least in Canada, whether you agree with the agenda or not. We have an agenda.
0: Uh, When you look at... um Politics, just for a second, I know that's not supposed to impact uh, the Bank of Canada and what they're doing. Um, but you have an, a, a provincial election next uh, next year in 2024, and that's not something the Bank of Canada to pay attention to. But a federal election, uh, not too far after that, in 2025, you would suspect the Liberals, the governing uh, party, would want all of this issue in the rearview mirror, which would tell you that they want this thing dealt with by next year, would they not?
1: Absolutely, 100%. If it's not dealt with, they will wear it politically, as any political party would be, because when you're in power, uh, when it's good times, you take credit. When it's tougher times, you get blamed, whether rightfully or not. So absolutely, they would like this dealt with. But the minute we see any interference with the Bank of Canada, as they do with the US Federal Reserve you hear politicians commenting on the chair of the US Federal Reserve all the time and and dragging him through the mud let's say in Canada you don't hear that nor should you the central bankers should be independent of politics and government mm-hmm.
0: michael thank you for your time today appreciate it thanks jazz but I also wanted to talk about the real estate industry uh, here in Vancouver. It looms large. I've always joked without the real estate industry, we'd have nothing to talk about at Vancouver dinner party. So it's very important to keep an eye out uh, um, in regards to the industry itself. It's not just a case of paying our mortgage right here and now. It's also about livability and making sure we continue to build housing as well. Now, there, has been, there have been reports in the past. CMHC had one in April talking about home building in Canada slowing down. Just as policymakers are trying to pick up the pace uh, that it's uh, CMHC at the time said that um, developers were more cautious about building new project. At the same time, those higher interest rates were driving up costs for builders as well. So there's a lot of churn in the industry, lots of concern as well as one would expect. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, housing in the medium and long term here in our city and some of the challenges before the industry is Andrew Ramlo. He's vice president of advisory services for Rennie Group. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me down again, Jess. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. and, and just uh, we're not going to talk. I don't want to spend more time talking about the interest rate hike, but I do want to ask you just overall <laughs> broadly uh, for the industry. When you hear something like that announced today, what is that? how does that resonate within the industry in your mind
2: oh and it resonates on two fronts one from the potential uh, not home, just homeowners, but householders, the, the cost of, uh, of either owning or renting a home, for that matter. Uh, and my heart goes out to everybody right now in terms of the, that segment of increasing costs. Uh, but then also on the other side, in terms of uh, the cost to actually build and add it, uh, the financing side of it is becoming increasingly complex uh, and more expensive. And unfortunately, even before this rate increase, we had seen a whole handful of rental purpose-built rental projects that had been put on hold uh, purely as a result of financing um, just because of the increasing costs there and so unfortunately we're going to put a bit of a kink into uh, the supply of that much needed purpose-built rental stock that was coming online
0: so from from your sense, sense of from you is that when you're, developers today are just whatever they are holding they're holding they're not looking for new properties. And in regards to building, actually building, which means higher interest rates you've got to deal with, uh, probably labor challenges, as we're, they're always dealing with as well, and the cost of that labor, uh, this is not a good time in regards to the supply question for Vancouver.
2: Yeah, I, I would say agreed uh, supply, as you had said, has been coming down, uh, unfortunately. So that's in on the completions side of things, but th- I guess a, a little bit of uh, sunlight or, uh, some, uh, silver lining is the number of s- building starts are actually coming up as well. And those starts will be completions in two and three years, mm-hmm. but it takes time to actually build them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'd say that this would be a bad time for developers to buy land. Every, the developers are always looking to, uh, to buy land. It all just depends on what they can get it for. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yes, in terms of the financing side, it's increasingly challenging uh, in terms of the construction cost side of things. We saw almost a 13% increase in uh, in construction costs last year. Uh, and then the labor side of things, definitely. Um, it's very challenging to, uh, to staff a construction site right now.
0: Does the industry... Uh, uh except uh except maybe not be the right word understand the need for more rentals and i mean it is a you know, for many years we did rentals because of the federal government being fully involved, in the provincial government, federal government got out of the business of, of, of rentals, in many cases, affordable housing. Uh, is that shift occurring within the industry? Do they see the need to, to build more? Most definitely,
2: yes. The challenge right now, though, is that the financing environment has put them all on hold. And from a developer side of things, the pro formas, the math behind actually running these projects because of where rents are uh, and the financing rates combined with high land costs and construction costs, they, they just don't make sense to do. So at that point, what we are looking or what the industry needs to look to is other sources of, uh, of funding, whether that be a federal government or the provincial government. Um, and you speak of the Period in the early, late 1970s, early 1980s, when we added per, a lot of purpose-built rental and social housing, um, at that point, through the national housing strategy in the late 70s, the federal government guaranteed 2% rates. So the developers or the builders would go out and secure a loan at market rates to build either co-op or nonprofit housing, uh, and uh, the federal government would backstop it down to 2%. So it provided them certainty and a fixed rate to do it at. There was all kinds of other subsidies that were layered on top of that as well to try and stimulate activity. And it it worked. And, And that now is what our affordable rental housing is. And unless we add that now, it doesn't matter at what level. It could be at the mid to higher end of the level within a decade and
0: two. That's going to be our affordable housing. Uh, And as a federal government, have you any indication that they're looking to do something like that again, their involvement in the nineteen like their involvement was in the
2: 1970s? You know, it's an interesting one. Uh, Some of the conversations that were had early on in the National Housing Strategy conversations, this was pre-COVID. Yes, there was some indications. Um, The Housing Accelerator Fund that is being um, put in place by CMHC is looking to provide funding, but they haven't gone so far, to my knowledge, to say that we're
0: going to look at purely this financing aspect of it, mm-hmm.
2: and to uh, to guarantee rates in
0: terms of construction financing. We're talking about the federal government. On the provincial side, you know, you still have to go to City Hall. That's the, mm-hmm. the government that, that oh, approves yeah. everything. And uh, are, has there been a – is it better now or is it the same in regards to the bureaucracy uh, at City Hall for getting projects through? Have things improved?
2: I would say generally, you know, in talking about this stuff for the last 20 years, yes, uh, it has improved. I've been part of conversations with the provincial government, federal government, as well as municipal governments recently, and it seems like all levels of government are on the same page in terms of needing to do something. Everybody's just trying to figure out what their levers are and how they can influence that. Mm-hmm. And from the municipal level, what they're saying is um, they need processes and procedures, something like digitization of building permits, uh, digitizing of applications. Um, But internally for the departments, that means a rationalization of a whole bunch of things like different zoning codes uh, to be able to streamline a lot of that. But those conversations are being had, and I'd like to think that uh, in the short, relatively short term, that some of those will come to fruition and we'll see
0: uh, an easier supply of, of housing coming to market. We are speaking to Andrew Ramel, Vice President of Advisory Services for Rennie Group. We're talking about Vancouver's real estate uh, market, uh, ever-changing and, and uh, certainly challenged like many markets. Uh, because of the rate hike uh, that we heard of today, of course, and we're at 5% now. Um, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about just our location. We're surrounded by water, border, mountains. Uh, How do you unlock more land?
2: Yeah, this is the million dollar question.
0: Uh, And, you know,
2: we certainly have some plots within the city of Vancouver that could, can be, or are being unlocked, and I think of uh, Jericho lands, Falls Creek Flats, although it's predominantly jobs-based right now, I'd, I'd love to see a proposal to uh, to incorporate some housing to go along with all the jobs down there. Yeah. Uh, Sanok lands as well, uh, so yeah, there, there's certainly some opportunity to unlock land, a larger-scale bits of land. But I think one of the other ones that we need to look at is just the existing stock of housing. And uh, you look at uh, the number of empty bedrooms in uh, empty nester households uh, throughout the city, and uh, there's certainly uh, some opportunity to not necessarily unlock land, but to unlock some housing and some capacity to add housing. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, we looked at the big lots, uh, the big plots, uh, potentially adding some significant number of people. But Mm -hmm. then again, back to the notion of some some gentle density and uh, uh, some diversity of housing types, Mm -hmm. we need to unlock some of that within our existing So it's probably
0: transitioning some baby boomers who've been in that home, raised their families, and helping them find a, a place where they're comfortable living. So that single family home that they're living in and those bedrooms are empty. Yep can be used uh, in, in a more valuable way. Well, and some of that
2: is a thin edge of the wedge. I know my parents were in the house that we grew up in with empty bedrooms for a good number of years, and they weren't necessarily tied to the bricks and mortar of the house. It was a community that they wanted to stay within. Yeah. And in suburban Ottawa, well, there just wasn't any opportunity for them to downsize. And so I think that, again, to, to start that, that, maybe that gentle density and adding some density to the communities throughout the city uh, will allow that transition to happen over time.
0: Do you buy the whole let's put six units on one single family lot? uh you know our colors are very astute, they get very practical too Well jazz, what about uh you know the the sewer upgrades that are needed and and more importantly the parking right parking, yeah. now is that feasible? Is that still one of those ideas that look great on paper, but in real life you can't we won't be able to really implement that
2: Oh no, I think we'll be able to implement it and and again to to uh, put a little bit finer point on it. I think the six units was for the larger lots as well, right? So mm-hmm. they're not looking at cramming six units on a 33 footer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, parking is certainly always an issue. And uh, the whole infrastructure capacity issue has certainly come up. And that was uh, in t- terms of some of the uh, upzoning along Canby, that was the reason why some of that was on hold was because it, they needed to upgrade the infrastructure. So that's certainly there. But no, I, I think it is certainly feasible uh, and, and desired. Again, it's that sort of that, I don't really like the term, but that missing middle housing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the middle density um, or mid rise or low rise. It's, it's something that somebody can still have a little bit of grass and maybe a Mr. Turtle Pool or a sandbox outside for the kids, which is important.
0: <laughs> now, increasingly, I, I hear this term I'm pro immigration, but. Uh, and, it's, and it's somehow we're really fixed, fixated on the 500,000 Canadians Im- immigrants that will move to this country in 2025. Right now, we're at about 420, 460 around there. Yeah. Uh, and I hear it from immigrants too, by the way. It's not sure. just those are native born here. People are just looking around, going, "Wow, that's a lot of people coming. Where are they all going to live? Um, is this?" doable. I mean, we used to have these debates when 225,000 people in the 1990s were coming, yep. we're debating immigration.
2: And now we're double. Yep.
0: Now we're double. Like, I think this is a legitimate issue. As an immigrant, I say this, where are these people going to live? Is there a moment where we're fundamentally disconnected for the labor that we need to housing we don't have?
2: Oh, I'd say we already are disconnected. And this is, uh, I think, a a pitfall of the federal immigration policy right now and them increasing the targets, rightfully so, to try and backstop the aging of the post-World War II boom Mm -hmm. uh, into retirement so that we make sure that we can still fund the health care and the Canada pension plan. Mm -hmm. So it warranted in that context. But what it didn't come along with was a parallel policy to say, we need housing for all these people that we're going to bring in. And so I think that is a real shortcoming of, of the federal immigration policy right now. And, but that being said, as part of the national housing strategy conversations we had a decade ago, that was brought up and it was widely recognized around the table that, yep, this is going to be an issue. And unfortunately it just, there's been no policy that's come alongside it. Uh, And, and now uh, like
0: anything, the longer you wait, the harder it is to catch up. And we've got a lot of catch up to do. When you look at the numbers last year, I think we were just talking um, during the commercial break, a million people moved here to Canada last year.
2: Well, yeah, it was a million population growth is what Stats Canada yeah. reported. And there was about 430,000 uh permanent residents, so Mm -hmm. immigrants, uh, and then somewhere in the range of just over 600,000 non-permanent residents. And so that's a combination of uh, temporary foreign workers, so people on like provincial nominee program or the international mobility program, uh, and students. Um, And when we dig down into the data, it's about split 50-50 between worker permits and student permits. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other source of, uh, of housing demand that's not talked about as much as the 500,000 uh, in terms of the permanent residence, but it has a real implication on the ground in terms of uh, available housing.
0: So, uh, when it comes to those students then, uh, is it a, th- is a question we need at least debate and discuss that we maybe need less international students coming in this country. That that may be the way we to go. Or we just build more housing? What I mean? Um, if if
2: we are going to say that uh, we're going to accept less foreign students, then there's got to be a, a further conversation about well, how do we hold tuition rates for locals down? And because that's the reason why, in large part, the post secondary institutions are are seeking those international students is so that they can keep our, uh, for me, full disclosure, I'm a white Canadian kid, um, to keep my tuition low. Um, So unless we go and change that model, then okay, maybe. But... we do need to add more
0: housing and some of that onus needs to fall on the shoulders of the post secondary institutions. Mm-hmm. Final question and, and it's a, a a big picture one. You always hear people saying, well the market's got to correct in Vancouver. There's got to be a big drop. At the, the 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 cost is too high for the average salary. We've never had a massive drop in real estate in my time that I first moved here to Vancouver in the in the early 1990s. Even now Sales may be down, but prices have really not been impacted in any meaningful way. Uh, do you see anything changing anytime soon? <laughs> it may, maybe,
2: unfortunately not. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it's challenging out there, and you're right. The, we've seen prices come up. Uh, but again, it's a function of supply and demand. Uh, we've seen the inventory out there being record lows in terms of our uh, last decade average. And sales uh, sales are still below average, but they fall well above what the available supply is. So uh, unfortunately, I, I see continued upward pressure on prices Mm -hmm. unless we add a really significant amount of supply or we come across some kind of economic
0: catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Andrew, uh, always good to see you. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. It is a complex business, so many variables, and uh, you cleared up and, and, and articulated it so very well. I've heard heard you at conferences as well. I look forward to having you on in the fall. I think we should do this on a semi-regular basis just to give us a snapshot, especially with the interest rates, where yeah. they're going. and We have no idea where they're going to go over the next year. So we would love to, Jazz. Thank you so much. The country's national vaccine uh, advisors are recommending uh, all Canadians get another COVID-19 booster shot uh, this fall. Uh, those recommendations come from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. That news came out yesterday. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the recommendation, and I thought it was a good time to also get a good, uh, an update on COVID, is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Disease Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me back, Jack. Yeah, it's been a long time. You know, and you're almost uh, on the show, radio station so much, you should have had your own show at one point. <laughs> 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 so it's great to hear your voice, you know. Uh, first oh. and foremost, your thoughts, of, uh, this is the right way to go in your mind in regards to the recommendation?
3: Absolutely. I think when the World Health Organization declared an end to the worldwide pandemic, they were very clear. They said that COVID-19 is now part of the range of respiratory viruses that we will have to deal with normally in the long term. So influenza requires a yearly shot. COVID-19 will require a yearly shot. Uh, Who should get
0: the booster shot?
3: Anyone over the age of five is strongly recommended to get this booster shot if they have been previously vaccinated and have not received a vaccine in the previous six months. Those who have not been vaccinated need to go through the primary vaccination series of two shots, eight to twelve weeks apart, of the older bivalent vaccine before we go into this newer vaccine. But this is really, if you're going to go get your flu shot, go get your COVID shot. Almost for sure, that's what's uh,
0: that's where the way I should think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be uh, more impactful? And, and this is a medical and health question and perhaps a political one as well to target higher risk groups uh, than a blanket recommendation
3: i think it's pretty well in parallel with what we're doing with influenza is it a blanket recommendation for the entire population but there are groups that it uh, that it's strongly recommended that they get it and it's really those that are at risk of severe covid those with heart disease lung disease underlying immune issues and the like Uh, And I think that's basically what we're going to do. That's part of the NACI recommendations. They said everyone should get it, but these people should really
0: get it. Okay. Now, is another wave coming, Uh, like a significant wave?
3: Well, I think it will ebb and flow over years the same way as influenza does. There will be some years that will be worse than others. It's important to recall that right now in Canada, over 1,700 people are hospitalized with covid 50 to 55 in the ICU and each week there's between 20 and 30 deaths so it's still there whether there'll be a wave of transmission probably I think not uh, the huge waves of the beginning of the pandemic but we still need to to be careful do all the things that have kept us safe including getting vaccinations when it's appropriate to do so.
0: Hmm. Uh, And and this booster uh, this fall that's to address uh, variants from the Omicron virus, specifically? Well, yeah, it's going to be
3: an XBB 1.5 or 1.16. It's going to be adapted to the strains that are circulating. Again, this is exactly the same as the yearly flu shot that's adapted to the strains that, uh, that we think are going to be uh, around it will be targeted. It will benefit greatly those that have received a complete series of three or more vaccinations. It will boost their immunity. And we're hopeful that that will be the yearly shot, that it will carry you until the following uh, fall.
0: Mm-hmm. How much longer do you think we'll have to have these? As you say, it, it's like uh, influenza uh, every year that we get our influenza shot. Is this something we're going to have to be, we'll be talking about 10 years from now? Or is this something we look at for the next two or three years?
3: Oh, ten, twenty, thirty years. Again, I think the parallels with hmm. influenza are are very much uh, pertinent. Is uh, it's it, it's part of the range of respiratory viruses that we will have to deal with for the foreseeable future. Hmm. Uh,
0: with the benefits of hindsight, uh, and you know, just uh, watching the system, the health system cope. Um, what do you think we should have done differently? Uh, and like I say, I say this up front with the benefits of hindsight. Is there anything we think you think we should have done differently in regards to our approach to to COVID?
3: Well, I think for vaccinations, we got it pretty much right. Uh, we uh, tried to vaccinate everyone, and we tried to specifically vaccinate those at highest risk. And intervene when there were outbreaks. Uh, we learned to wash our hands. We learned to stay home when we were sick. We learned. To wear masks. I think that in general, we got it right in some of the details with hindsight. We could have opened up certain things more quickly. Uh, We could have intervened on outbreaks in a more insightful way. But I think that's really, uh, you know, small picture stuff. We got the big picture pretty well right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to the healthcare system itself, what would you like to see that's different now in regards to dealing with future pandemics, but also broadly just having a, 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 a successful and, and, and more importantly, just a healthcare system that can cope with these types of things? Is there anything you'd like to see more, you know, beyond, I think most British Columbia would say, more resources for a healthcare system? Is there anything else that you would like to see done differently from the healthcare perspective?
3: Yeah, I think two things. We need to focus on making sure that if someone needs to see a healthcare provider today, that that's made available to them. That'll help us understand if there are problems afoot, and uh, it'll certainly improve the health of populations in general. Mm -hmm. In terms of outbreaks, one of the things I might have done differently is to involve community physicians, community health resources, in parallel with uh, the groups from uh, the public health uh, agencies, uh, within the province to uh, help uh, respond to the pandemic. Now everyone's learned what this is. It's our uh, there hadn't been a pandemic for a hundred years, and now we've seen it. So I think uh, I would involve more of the healthcare resources that are available in the community to help improve the overall response. Uh,
0: and final question to you: Do you think there has been enough introspection from our policy advisors, our elected officials, media, just in regards to? how we better prepare uh, for this in the future. You said we did the big things well. Do you think there's enough introspection within this democracy and a public system uh, that we'd be better prepared for, for, for next time?
3: I think so. I think uh, for the next uh, 5, 10 years or more, all of this will be in our recent memory. And if we see outbreaks, we will understand the risk of not doing anything and we will act uh, very uh, decisively. So I think that clearly is a lesson learned. Whether we will be able to do so with the resources available to us at a given time is another question. But we should make sure as much as we can that that will be the case if it's needed.
0: Dr. Conway, thank you so much for your time today. Great to hear your voice. Always a pleasure. We'll talk again in the fall when it's time
3: to give the shots, to encourage people to just uh, go out there and
0: roll up their sleeves. I promise you we'll have you on the show for sure to talk about that. Thank you so much. Thank you, bye Well, summer is here and one only has to look outside and it's been just fabulous here uh, in Vancouver. In fact, the last couple of weeks have been uh, just beautiful weather and all I have to do is walk outside the studio at the end of any shift and the streets are just packed. Uh, people outside enjoying the day and uh, sun is definitely here in Vancouver and, and uh, people are are uh, enjoying uh, the sun for sure. But with it, of course, comes ultraviolet rays. Um, they are the strongest, of course, this time of the year and they can be quite damaging to uh, the sensitive tissues of your eyes. Joining me now to talk a little bit about protecting your eyes this summer is Dr. Niru Gupta, professor and head of the Department of ophthalmology and visual sciences at UBC, Dr. Gupta, thank you for joining us today.
4: Well, thank you for having me, Jazz. Uh,
0: why is it important to protect your eyes in the summer? I mean, it's uh, generally people put their sunglasses on and think they're they're going to be fine. Talk to me a little bit about the the damage the sun actually does to your eyes.
4: Well, you know, you know, the the sun. We love the sun, but it also releases energy that is you know, in the form of UV A and B radiation mm-hmm. uh, that is actually quite damaging to all uh, of the tissues of the eyes. And uh, we need some sort of protection. These rays uh, uh, damage the DNA in our cells that's responsible for providing the instructions for how cells are supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. So when they misbehave, you can get all kinds of damage, degenerations, tumors, uh, and uh, loss of function
0: um, are we seeing more of that now? I mean, generally, you see people out and about with sunglasses on, they have a general sense of protecting their eyes. Uh, are we seeing more of this sun damage when it comes to the eyes?
4: It's difficult to be um, deliberately uh, sure about whether there's an actual increase. However, mm-hmm. we do know that things like the you know the ozone layer, uh, if that is depleted, that will increase our risk to exposure if uh, climate changes are also going to change our level of exposure and of course it very much depends on the activities of individuals whether we're sun lovers and we seek you know travel and and uh, events that uh, put us at higher risk so all these play uh, a, an important role mm-hmm.
0: uh, How can one protect one's eyes
4: Well, the most important thing to do is to to remember that without a covering on the eye, there is no protection. And sunglasses are the best way to do it. Sunglasses specifically that block all UVA and B rays, which means UV400 is the wavelength that we're looking at. So anything that says, you know, 100% protection or UV 400 mm-hmm. is really what we're looking for. And,
0: and I guess uh, wearing a, a hat or a cap is probably helpful as well on top of that.
4: Very. Absolutely. It reduces it reduces the exposure that is hitting the tissues not only around the eye but inside the eye.
0: Mm-hmm. When are people most vulnerable uh, to uh, UV rays? Well,
4: it's vulnerability comes at an early age. So children are very vulnerable because this is cumulative damage over a lifetime. And so they're in their developmental stages. So it's really important to start young, get them to wear their sunglasses, model good behavior, you know, make sure they're comfortable, fun, got a few straps on and just get them into that habit. Uh, So that's one vulnerable population. And then the other thing is um, people who, really sunburn easily, they've got, you know, increased risk of sun damage, very fair, sort of light-eyed individuals. They're at increased risk of, of this type, sort of damage just by, you know, the genetic makeup.
0: Um, is there anything, uh, th- those folks who are wearing contact lenses, I used to wear contact lenses at one point, is there any special precaution you need to take um, in, in the summer months?
4: Yeah, so remember the contacts that will help you see may, some of them may have a little bit of UV protection in them, but you still need your sunglasses. There's absolutely no way that those contact lenses are going to be able to uh, block out the necessary.
0: UV rays. Uh, And and just getting back to the sunglasses uh, issue for a moment. I mean, you should you don't need to worry about buying four hundred dollar designer sunglasses. It's really going back to what you said, which is look for the UV four hundred.
4: That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. We're not looking for the price tag. We're looking for UV four hundred as as the as the rating. Yes.
0: There, there is sometimes a misconception just because you're paying more that you're getting a better pair of sunglasses. Uh, you know, rather than let's say buying something at a uh, uh, that is much cheaper and and uh, not really looking at what the protection uh, that is being be, being offered. I'm just curious. Are there any misconceptions about eye protection?
4: Yeah, I think the, the, the one the thing to remember is it doesn't have to be hot mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be sunny. So you can be out on the ski slopes and you've got a lot of reflectivity coming off of the snow. So you can actually get a lot of UV radiation coming at your eyes. And um, the things just if you're on the water, boat, near a boat, be- uh, on a beach, there's a lot of reflection. And so it's important that, to, to remember that those are settings where you're You've got an increased risk of exposure.
0: Okay, that's that's really good. Uh, that's really good advice, uh, Doctor Gupta. Thank you so much for your time today.
4: Oh well, thank you very much for having me, Jazz.
0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.